I want to make one thing perfectly clear. This show is not about lumberjacks. My name is Christopher Grunland, and every month I share a story. Sometimes the stories contain truths, but most of the time they're made up. Sometimes the stories are funny, other times they're serious. But you have my word about one thing. I will never, ever share a story about lumberjacks. This time, Cynthia Griffith and I narrate a story I wrote about a woman who has a pocket watch that does more than just tell time. All right, let's get to work. Stand still. Prologue. When I was 18 years old, for my high school graduation, my grandfather gave me a pocket watch. It seemed like a strange gift, the kind of thing you give to a grandson, but because I'm an only child, he had no other choice. I want you to have this, Maddie. I want you to take good care of it. You're old enough now. I said, thank you, but he could tell I wasn't impressed. You expected something more? No, it's nice. I looked at the watch. It's beautiful. And it was. The gold case housing the timepiece contained etchings of constellations I'm not sure were even real on the back. The front cover was an intricate latticework carving allowing you to get glimpses of the watch face even when closed. When opened, ivory Roman numerals stood out on a ring of lapis lazuli. The center of the face revealed an inner working of brass gears beneath glass. A small round window between the four and five hour marks seemed to hover over the gears. Contained within was an etching of an hourglass in more blue stone and a tiny hand that looked like it was meant to make a journey around the inset window. A moonstone-like crystal you'd swear glowed faintly even though it didn't was nestled in the gears behind it all. On the outside of the watch case, directly across from the tiny window, was an inset button. Thanks, Grandpa. Seriously, it's neat. You're welcome. And then he said it. You will find there is more to this watch than what it seems. I was in the living room when I heard the yelp from the bedroom. When I went to see what it was, I found my husband, Aaron, on his back, struggling to get up from the floor. His legs were folded under him. I helped him up. What happened? I don't know. It was like an electric rush, and then you were standing over me. Two nights later, I was awakened by Aaron having a seizure in bed next to me. That was the first of several late-night ambulance rides. Hospital visits led to a specialist, and that led to an oncologist, tests, and the discovery that Aaron's head was so full of tumors that there was nothing to do except prepare for the end. Thirty-six-year-olds aren't supposed to get brain cancer. We hadn't even celebrated our 10th anniversary. According to the oncologist, we wouldn't. After the bad news, Aaron wanted sushi. We ate in silence, both numbed by what we were told. I wondered if that feeling would ever go away. Aaron cleared his throat. It was a particular tone that said, I know we're being quiet right now, but I have something I'd like to say. I looked up and waited. I'm not giving up, but before things get any worse, I want to go someplace special. I knew what that meant. Starved Rock State Park is really nothing special, at least compared to other wild places. 
People don't make cross-country journeys to see it like they do for the Grand Canyon, Yellowstone, and Yosemite. But by Illinois standards, it's a grand place, a destination for Chicagoans tired of heading north to Wisconsin to get away from it all for a bit. A convenient escape for busy people like us. I think Aaron liked it so much because his parents took him there when he was young. I liked it because Aaron liked it so much. And I'll admit, the view of the Illinois River from the overlooks in the fall is a bit of a gem tucked away in the land of Lincoln. So that's where we went a few days after his diagnosis, on a misty day in the middle of the week to avoid crowds. We did what we always did, some biking and then a hike up to the overlooks. Making sure no one spotted us, we climbed off the walkway at Eagle Cliff Overlook and dangled our feet over the edge of the rock. I thought about all the conversations we had at the spot, how in its own weird way talking there seemed to give our dreams wings. It was where Aaron told me he'd made Principal Horn in the symphony. It's where I told him I'd moved up to associate Principal Cello. It's where he proposed to me and later where we pondered the names of the children we'd never have. Aaron held my hand and then leaned over and kissed me. Such a simple thing we'd done who knows how many times, but it was perfect. I wanted it to last. I slid my free hand into my pocket. When I was 18 years old for my high school graduation, my grandfather gave me a pocket watch. What do you mean, Grandpa? There's more to this watch than it seems? You're going to think I'm crazy, but this watch can stop time. Only for 24 hours, and then it seems to take a long time before you can do it again. As much as I can understand it, there's a crystal inside that somehow does the impossible. Once the button's been pushed, it can't be pushed for another 25 years. I looked at the small button on the side of the watch next to the small window with a single hand over a tiny hourglass. When did you push it? When your grandmother was sick. People say they'd kill for just one more day with a loved one. I got that chance. Now it was my turn. I never fully believed my grandfather's story about the watch, but there was enough of something in his eyes when he shared the story that ensured I didn't press the inset button along the edge to test out his claim. I had nothing to lose that day at the overlook. I slid my fingernail along the side of the watch and pressed the button. Not now, damn it. What? He tapped his forehead with the tip of his forefinger. The tumors. Something weird's happening. He pointed to a bald eagle frozen in the sky. Do you see that? That eagle just sitting there not moving? I became aware of how still the world had become. I do. Really? I nodded and pulled the pocket watch from my pocket. I told him everything. So we have 24 hours before all this starts up again? That's what I was told. When that little hand makes its way around the hourglass window, time starts back up. We sat at the overlook, saying nothing and holding hands for what felt like an hour. It was weird. We were given an extra day, and with it came this overwhelming feeling to make the most of it. But when you're actually faced with an extra 24 hours no one else gets, it's not as easy as you'd think to spend it. In a way, I became more aware of the passage of time than knowing Aaron's life was coming to an end. I feel pressured, like we should figure out something important in this time or do something bigger than us. I know. 
All I really want to do is sit here and chat, but even with that, I feel like this time has to be used for something special. It's weird. That was an understatement. You don't realize how loud even the quiet parts of the world are until time stops completely and all is silent. No breeze or distant hum of life. We'd have 24 extra hours, but not an extra sunset. The only sound was us, and I found myself getting up and pacing just to hear my footsteps instead of the sound of my heart beating. I heard my body make sounds I never knew it made. In a strange way, I wish I hadn't pressed the button on the pocket watch. I think we both kind of wanted the 24 hours to be over before they had even really begun. Maybe if it were like Grandpa using the watch as he chatted with Grandma near the end. Just sitting and talking, sure, but out where we were... It all seemed like such a burden. So we hiked and biked and sat and talked. We ate snacks and got hungry because we'd not expected to be there overnight, even though night never came, sleeping with no visual clues that time had passed us something to a mind. At least the tiny hand over the hourglass moved. Otherwise, we'd have had no real idea how much time was passing. We were almost relieved when the 24 hours was over. We went back to the overlook and waited. And waited. Is it just me, or does it seem like that little hand stopped? It's not just you. I tapped the watch, hoping that would do something. I put it to my ear, hearing nothing. I wound it and shook it, but the tiny hand over the hourglass didn't seem to move. Even worse, the crystal behind it all had lost its perceived glow. Maybe it's like the watched pot never boiling saying... We keep looking and it's not going to go. Let's go hike some more. We'll definitely know when time starts up again. But it never did. None of this makes any sense. We sat in the car trying to figure out what to do next. Time stopped, but the car doors opened, so it's not like everything is frozen in time. But then the car won't start. You couldn't start a little fire when we slept. Aaron shifted in the passenger seat. Maybe time hasn't completely stopped, but just slowed down so much that we perceive it as stopped. Or maybe it stopped, and because we were holding hands when you triggered the watch, we're both in some kind of bubble where we can move, but everything else depending on the passage of time to work is stuck. The car won't start, but we can pedal our bikes. We can't cook food, but we can eat what's already been cooked. It took us a week to bike back to the city. You'd think having a town the size of Chicago to yourself would be great, but the lunch rush traffic made biking seem like an obstacle course, and it was creepy passing car after car with people frozen in time. It took me weeks more to get over the fear that one of them would quickly turn toward me with a surprised look on their face. But Aaron was in good health for the time, so I couldn't complain. It made no sense that our bodies seemed to function as they always did, but the progression of the tumors inside his head seemed to be as much of a standstill as the millions of people around us, frozen in their everyday hustle. We ate in any restaurant we wanted, as long as there were people in the process of eating. Simply stroll in, find a server carrying food to a table, and take the food for ourselves. Most of the time we took it home, but after we grew more accustomed to crowded spaces full of still people, sometimes we just stood by servers, eating from the plates they carried. Aaron had figured out from the start that poking, even moving people, did nothing. Occasionally, as we walked through our neighborhood, he'd take two strangers and put them in compromising positions. It bothered me. 
I knew they weren't dead, but it seemed like some kind of desecration. After what seemed like months, we came to accept it was just us. Maybe for forever. It hit me that as much as I loved having Aaron well and in good spirits, forever is longer than I could ever imagine, especially when everything was at a standstill. Televisions and computer monitors frozen in time like the people all around us. It's not that we watched much TV, but damn, we loved a good Netflix binge now and then. The novelty of eating in any restaurant grew old fast, and we worried about the day years down the line when we'd exhaust all meals in our neighborhood and be forced to live in other parts of the city just to eat. The perpetual fog of the day that never started back up compounded the gloom. I thought about hopping on my bike and riding as far as it took to see the sun. But it wasn't all bad. We had each other, and we had music. We'd moved the few people milling about the symphony center when time stopped to the wings, and we had the place all to ourselves whenever we wanted. If nothing else, you have plenty of time right now to work up to principal cello in case time ever starts up again. When even the novelty of having the symphony center to ourselves faded away, Aaron spent his days reading about watch repair. You realize if you fix it, our time together ends. I know. But what kind of life is this for you, Maddie? You talk about missing the wind. You talk about how tired you are of lunch for every meal. You talk about missing your friends and how you can't even look at them when you track them down because they all look dead to you. I'm obsessed with logging our sleep in a journal so we have some idea of how much time has passed for us. But who can say what's accurate when the sun never moves? It's getting to me, too. I'm caving in. Nothing new ever happens in our lives. All we talk about is the past and the future. The novelty of the present has long overstayed its welcome. Aaron was right, of course. What he said had crossed my mind so many times. I knew what it meant if he figured out how to fix the pocket watch, but we both knew it needed to be done. So he worked at that, and I played music. Aaron came into the study who knows how many months after he decided to become the king of horology. What's that you're playing? Something I wrote. It's nice. I like it. I've been thinking. If you figure out how to fix the watch and, well, after you're gone, I'm not going back to the symphony. I want to do my own thing. Why? Maybe it's the increased monotony of it all since Starved Rock, but I'm tired of repeating. I'm tired of trying to find that balance of perfect and needing to become the best. It all seems like the equivalent of being able to paint the Mona Lisa over and over, perfect each time, but never painting your own things. I guess I'm tired of doing the thing I've been told to do better than everyone else since childhood. What is everyone else, anyway? I look out the window and they're all just sitting there, unaware of anything. And I'm not so sure that many of us aren't much different even when time moves forward. Aaron let me get it all out before he showed me the crystal from behind the hourglass in the watch. Squeeze it. I took it between my thumb and forefinger and squeezed. It wasn't spongy, but it seemed to give a little. I have an idea. We looked at the eagle, still frozen in the sky above the overlook at Starved Rock State Park. Aaron placed the crystal at a high point on the stone between us, and then he picked up a rock. I placed my hand over the top of his. He leaned over and kissed me. Ah! I yelled as loud as I could when we brought the rock down onto the crystal, shattering it. Or rather, just kind of squishing it. 
I cried when I felt the wind for the first time in years. I sobbed as I watched the eagle continue on its way above us, seemingly oblivious to the stoppage of time. And I wept when I looked at Aaron and realized what it meant to us. The car started right up, and we laughed as we neared the city. Oh man, what I would have given to see all those people with the empty plates and all those people I put together on the street once time started back up for them. I never realized how much I missed traffic and other people all going places in a hurry. The return to time meant it having its grip on us again. Schedules to keep and people to see. Lots of people to see. When I found myself on the cusp of saying, no more visitors, I remembered how lonely it was without other people in my life. So time passed, and with that, I watched Aaron slip. And then one morning, I watched him die. They say time heals all wounds. It doesn't, but sometimes it's enough to take the edge off the hurt. I scattered Aaron's ashes from the edge of Eagle Cliff Overlook at Starved Rock State Park. It's what he said he wanted. As I watched his remains fall to the river below, I wondered if time was ever stopped without me realizing it, the same way Aaron and I stopped time for everybody else. Maybe others lived years, even lifetimes, in the time it took Aaron's ashes to reach the river. It's funny how much more aware of time I am these days. I've never been fond of that saying, it's funny, when things really aren't funny. Time isn't a funny thing, it binds us. Our time can end in an instant or drag on long after we're ready to go, but it also drives us. The eagle that was frozen in the sky still has no concept of time like we do. It wakes up, eats, avoids being killed, mates, eats some more, and sleeps. But we know the end is coming, and I'm not sure we're better off with the understanding of time we have. It puts us in a hurry because there's always a specter on our heels whispering, tick-tock, tick-tock. Things to be enjoyed become burdens when we look at where we are in life compared to where others are in the same time. I never made principal cello. In fact, after Aaron died, I really did quit the symphony for good. I write my own music now, not comparing my success or lack of it to others. I play tiny venues and release recordings on my own. I'm no longer playing the same things repeated for hundreds of years. In that way, I've cut off the march of time even though it moves on each season without me now at the Chicago Symphony Center. Even with all the time in the world, I couldn't win. I am here, and Aaron is not. I keep moving forward, in part in his memory, but more than that, because it's simply what humans do. In the end, all I can do, all any of us can do, is make the most of the time that's left. A big thank you for listening to Not About Lumberjacks, and thank you to Cynthia Griffith for helping narrate Standstill. All music by Ergo Fizmiz and Christopher Constanza, released under a Creative Commons license. Not About Lumberjacks is also released under a Creative Commons license. Visit nolumberjacks.com for information about the show, the voice talent, and music, and cfgriffith.com for information about Cynthia. 
Next month, a homeless man who talks with birds is convinced he can speak with his dead wife on the moon, if only he can fix a broken radio he found in a dumpster. Until next time, be mighty and keep your axes sharp.